Thank you and welcome to, uh, if, you're, if you signed up for the three zeros breakout, you're in the right place. If you didn't, you might want to revise your, your life choices for the morning. But, but welcome to all. Uh, you're still welcome to stay and we, we, we welcome the opportunity to have this, this discussion with a group and, and I had a chance. I, one of the things about working at CSAS is you get to see the lists ahead of time. So I have an idea who's in the room and it's a very, very talented, experienced group uh, that we hope to get gain, gain from your wisdom here. Uh, our, our subject for the next hour is the notion of an ambitious U.S. policy goal and we wanted to focus on this thing called the three zeros. Uh, mostly because uh, our, our uh, host for the conference, uh, Fred Smith of, of uh, FedEx Express, used this as the title of a, 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 an op-ed op in the Wall Street Journal. It ran uh, in October of 2018, October 18, 2018, and it was a wonderful example. Uh, something they teach you when you when you manage people is try to catch your employees doing something right, okay, and, and reward them for them instead of always trying to catch them doing something wrong. And the president had just done something right, which is he concluded the USMCA and talked after the G7 meetings about, it's no, I'm not just about tariffs, I'm about free markets. I want, I want, low, I want zero tariffs, I want, I want open markets. And uh, Fred Smith, along with uh, Steve Moore, uh, Art Laffer, and Steve Forbes, uh, penned this op-ed, very short, congratulating the president on USMCA and said, you've articulated in your tweet a great goal for the United States, a policy goal of zero tariffs, zero non-tariff barriers, and zero subsidies. And if you, the United States were to set that example and promote that in all our negotiations, it would lead to greater growth, reduction in poverty, and it will restore, in many ways, American confidence. So what we're going to do today is, is test out that notion and see, see if it can be done, acknowledging that it's a reversal from the current rhetoric of the administration, which tends to be focused on unfairness, and we're somehow being treated unfairly that needs to be corrected. This is about a, sort of a much more confident and forward-looking statement, but it has its constraints, so we'll talk about that. In any case, I'd like to kick off of the discussion. I have two wonderful discussants whom I will be just trying to spur along so we can listen to them. Uh, Dan Atkinson will start first. Dan is uh, the director of the Stifle Center of the, for Trade Policy at the Cato Institute. You can read his bio, but I would note that he has the rare, uh, uh, in, he's the rare individual who managed to be able to hold a job for any period of time in DC. Dan's been there since the year 2000. So that, and by any standard in Washington, that's real continuity in place. So uh, welcome Dan and, and we'll, we look forward to that. Uh, the other discussant, you know well, the Honorable Susan Schwab. Susan is a strategic advisor at Mayor Brown. She's a professor at the University of Maryland School of Public Policy and was the United States Trade Representative 2006 to 2009, almost coincident with the period of time in which Secretary Paulson was Treasury Secretary, yeah, exactly. off by a month or two. But in any case, so they, uh, they, they came through that, uh, that uh, fiery furnace together and uh, we were delighted to have uh, Susan here, she's a great friend of CSIS. She had a great, she had a lot of experience in government before being USTR, by the way. She was uh, on the Hill with uh, Senator Danforth, a Republican Senator of Missouri. She was in a series of assignments, including legislative director. And she was Director General of the U.S. Foreign and Commercial Service at the Department of Commerce. So she brings a wealth of knowledge and experience, as does Dan. They're going to start with different points of view. Uh, we'll listen to them bring in the room and see where we all end up. So thanks again for coming. Dan. 
Great. Thank, thank you very much, Scott, for the introduction, and thank you all for joining. I'm really pleased to be here. I'm ecstatic that I'm sharing the podium with uh, Ambassador Schwab, whom, with, for whom I have great respect and admiration. You're pretty cool too, Scott. Um, speaking, yeah. of the, speaking of my Cato uh, longevity, I would attribute that maybe to, you know, once you write and speak enough in a provocative way and alienate enough people, the job opportunities just don't come in. So <laughs> that could be one of the reasons. Um, so I, I've been asked to sort of summarize the, the virtues of the three zeros policy. I'm, I think I see myself here as the idealist. I'm going to set, set up why this would be a good idea, and then I will probably be shot down by, by the realist, Ambassador Schwab. Um, but you know, I would say that I am not as much of an idealist as I was 19 years ago when I joined Cato. I joined Cato to, jo to head up this project on anti-dumping reform. Uh, I thought, oh, all policymakers need is to hear persuasive arguments and the, the law will be gone. Well, uh, it's, it's still here, as am I. Uh, and uh, we're here discussing what's going on here. So we've had Two years, 25 months of a whirlwind with, uh, with President Trump. Certainly, by now, we all know he's a major departure from U.S. trade policy in the past. The past 13 administrations, presidents from, uh, from Roosevelt to Obama, saw trade as a mutually beneficial activity, that it's good for uh, building relations among nations, good for economic growth. Uh, they supported the institutions of trade. Uh, yes, they dabbled in protectionism every once in a while, but I think it, ultimately to preserve the broader system and to preserve the good. Uh, then we have President Trump, who has a completely different view, his zero-sum uh, game view of trade. Uh, he sees imports as the other team's points and exports as our points, and the trade account as the scoreboard, and, and that we need to uh, uh, strive to have a trade surplus uh, to declare victory in, in trade. You know that he's been engaging in a lot of protectionism, uh, unusual forms, in, invoking Section 232 for steel and aluminum. Possibly, uh, we'll see what happens in the coming weeks on with respect to automobiles, uh, the 301 case with China. Uh, so he's been uh, pretty, pretty, pretty assertive. Um, I would say that in, in, in January of 2017, I wrote that President Trump will be the best spokesman for free trade since Adam Smith. And by that, I meant not that he was going to embrace markets, but that he would make such a mess of the protectionist message that he would demonstrate the costs of protectionism and, and that nobody would, he would be toxic and that nobody would really want to stay by his side. And in fact, we've seen people like uh, uh, Joe Stiglitz uh, and, um, and, 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 and others, uh, others on the left, uh, Robert Reich, uh, who've been avowed uh, antagonists with respect to things like TPP, Pining for the days when TPP was an option now. Paul Krugman. Yeah, they're coming along. Um, so, um, so I never expected Trump to be a proponent of three zeros, zero tariffs, zero subsidies, zero non-tariff barriers. Zero, I associate zero in trade policy with him when it comes to zero sum game. Um, the, uh, the, uh, the, Trump's handlers, and you mentioned some of them, and his advisors like to suggest that really the purpose of his tariffs is to achieve no tariffs in the long run, to re reduce, to, to eliminate bar barriers. Uh, and I think that he's really motivated uh, by perceptions that the system is unfair to the United States. We have generally lower trade barriers in other countries. There is a lack of reciprocity. His perception of reciprocity goes down to sort of the tariff line level. What, we have 2.5% duties on automobiles. Uh, the Europeans have 10%, uh, the, the Chinese 
Obviously, that's not fair, and that's what's, what's motivating him. He doesn't seem to have a, an understanding of the history of the GATT, uh, the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade. Originally, the 23 original contracting parties got together, and there were asymmetries into what kind of concessions were going to be made. The, the goal was to get as many countries on board as possible, uh, and n not everybody had to pay the same amount. It was kind of like, like tithing. You know, you come and you, and, you, and you give what you can, and then subsequent to that, there was this formulaic approach to reducing uh, tariffs, and by and large, there is balance in the system. Um, so, that said, I, I, I think I will swim with Trump uh, and support the idea of three, uh, the three zeros right now. And why is that? We have to ask, you know, wh why is it that we trade? Let's go back to, to, to basics here. And I'm just going to say, imagine a world in which we don't trade and that we live in solitude. And that we have to make our own clothes, build our own shelters, hunt and harvest our own food. We would spend our entire day uh, in service to this uh, subsistence. We would be poor, life would be nasty, brutish, and short. Uh, turns out that I'm pretty good at making clothes relative to the other uh, hunting and, and building houses, but I have to devote parts of my time to each of these endeavors. Then I find somebody who's in a similar situation. She happens to be living a subsistence life too, but she's a, she's a better hunter than she is the other uh, uh, trades. So she focuses on hunting and building houses. I focus on making my clothes and building houses. And we can exchange a little bit. Then we find a third person whose comparative advantage is uh, in building houses. So the three of us focus on what we do best and we exchange our surpluses. Now, we're not necessarily in subsistence anymore. We can actually save something. We have savings. And eventually, we can afford things beyond subsistence, like the latte at Starbucks, uh, like the spinning class. So we, we're, that's the way things work in, in, in our modern society. Uh, we all specialize in things. We have three or two or typically one career that we focus on. We, our monetized output we use to buy the things that we don't produce. And in order for that to happen, in order for us to be able to specialize, we need larger markets. And how do we get larger markets? Well, you trade. But what is inhibiting that trade? Tariffs. So reducing tariffs is a, is a, is a, a necessary but insufficient uh, um, um, determinant of, 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 of enlarging markets. Zero tariffs certainly uh, helps in that regard. You have zero tariffs, you get products across borders, that's great. But once they're in the other country, you still have rules that favor domestics. You still have subsidies for domestics. Um, you still have sanitary and phytosanitary measures that can masquerade, uh, that, that that really are protectionist but can masquerade as public health uh, uh, um, uh, initiatives. So the point of trade is to expand the market. We need to get rid of all of these kinds of barriers. Um, we have local content requirements, which are these behind-the-border barriers that we need to go after, indigenous innovation policies, divergent regulations, industrial policies designed to bolster capacity uh, for, uh, in certain, uh, certain industries. Um, so in order to be able to specialize, we need to get rid, we need to really enlarge markets, which means get rid of the bar barriers at the border and the barriers uh, inside of the border. In the United States, we have a lot of these uh, behind the border barriers. I would think of things like Buy American provisions, which um, limit government procurement spending to domestic uh, providers, uh, 
making sure the taxpayers get the smallest bang for the buck. Uh, we have heavily protected services industries like the airlines and the, and, and the maritime shipping industries, which generate costs that are, that are perpetuated throughout the system all the way down to, to the household. Um, really, really protectionist measures in place on transportation, which is a, it's a vital part of our, our economy. Uh, regulatory protectionism, um, SPS measures on catfish, for example, seafood, tropical fruits, beef and pork. We've had energy export restrictions for a long time. They've been lifted recently, but so the administrative barriers are mostly going away, but now we have real major physical barriers. We don't have the infrastructure to export our oil and our natural gas. Um, we have restrictions on foreign investment. We have rules of origin in our trade agreements that limit the, the scope for uh, capitalizing on these agreements, local content requirements. And that's in addition to the high tariffs that we have on consumer products like clothing uh, and food and the anti-dumping and countervailing duty measures we have on shelter. You know, we have anti-dumping and countervailing duty measures on things like, you know, lumber, steel, cement, uh, uh, appliances, nails, paint, flooring, housing, clothing, footwear, food, and housing. Uh, it's really a regressive uh, tax. Um, but we don't need reciprocity is the point that I would like to make. We don't need reciprocity to, uh, to achieve uh, gains, to improve here. We can do this by ourselves. Uh, you know, my, my ideological self is telling you that uh, unilateral trade liberalization, there's plenty of scope for that. Um, yes, if another country, if the EU, for example, were willing to go to zero in all three of these categories with us uh, at the same time, uh, uh, without much delay, that would be great. But in reality, and I don't want to uh, encroach on, on, on Ambassador Schwab's uh, uh, talk, <laughs> just, uh, because I think you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna touch on this, uh, is that we can't, uh, if, the if the U.S. is willing to come all the way down to zero, for example, and the Europeans are only willing to go halfway to zero, is it better for us to just do it unilaterally and just forego the negotiations? Or should we just go halfway and halfway? It, so the point is, we can do a lot on our own. We don't need the consent of people in other capitals to, to, to tell us how this works. Um, the, uh, just a couple more points and I'll, I'll stop. Um, so we, we benefit from opening up, from imports. Those are, that's the, those are the real uh, benefits of trade. Uh, you know, when you go to the supermarket, you want to part with as few dollars as possible to fill your basket up as much as possible. That's the way trade should work too. That's the, economically, that's the way trade works. You want to get as much import from, for your exports. So you, know, you, you want to run a, a trade deficit to some extent. I mean, you want to be able to, you don't want to impose trade barriers which make it more expensive for you to, it raises your cost of living. Uh, so we want to get rid of all of these barriers. That's the economic argument. The problem, what I've found in my 19 years at Cato is that trade is an economic activity, but trade policy resides in the political realm. And so we do need to engage in that, and that always takes us down. It's very deflating. And with that, I would turn it over to Ambassador Schwab. <laughs> Thank you, Dan. And uh, somewhere, Adam Smith is smiling. You've got the really the pure sort of the pure the pure economic or libertarian perspective. Commerce is commerce, no matter who you're doing it with. The larger the larger the the market, the greater the degree of specialization, and the greater the value from the specialization. And we would benefit from reducing our own barriers. Probably that's the big, biggest benefit of trade is when you reduce your own barriers. So great, great, great opening statement, Dan. Thanks. Thank you. Susan. Okay. Playing the role of the turd in the punch bowl. Um, so let me, so I'm going to, to um, uh, thank Dan 
whose work I admire, and thank you for giving all the examples of why uh, it won't happen, it can't happen, and um, uh, I am going to end up with, uh, if we would like it to happen as this big, hairy, audacious goal, uh, what elements of the zero for zero for zero you may want to go after first and how and why. Uh, but, but the won't happen can't be done side of the equation is a very serious one and, and I do think we need to um, acknowledge it. And the uh, uh, reasons really are they're political, they're practical, uh, and they are protectionist, which is a mix of the two. Uh, they range both from the, from the multilateral side of the equation as well as the bilateral and so-called reciprocity, and I'm going to come back to that term. Um, basic enforcement, uh, you know, what are your enforcement tools if tariffs are not part of that equation? Um, but I think when, it, when all is said and done, if you can go back ultimately to the principles underlying the zero for zero, I think that is where potential solutions lie and potential directions lie. So I'm, I'm going to sort of circle back to that. Let me start with a critique uh, and, and be as brief as I can. Uh, this is a, a group, folks I know here know all of this, so this is sort of preaching to the choir. Um, it's a nice choir. Where it, it is, but I, I will start with the obvious, is, which is we are all sinners. Um, and uh, you know, just a couple of examples in the in the recent, in the not too recent, I mean, not too distant past. You know, India going backwards on e-commerce as a as a for example, uh, and when we're talking about zero for zero on tariffs, India, I'll take bindings first. Uh, before we start talking about eliminating tariffs, uh, let's talk about bindings, um, and we will soon get to transparency. I'm not even going to talk about China. Uh, we talked about China this morning. China is obvious, and those issues are are very serious, and they are in the they are in the um, uh, on the particularly on the non-tariff barrier side and the subsidy side, and on both of those, they have China has gone backwards since 2001. Uh, very dramatically. Um, Russia, you know, the definition of scoff law since Russia joined the WTO, uh, if we're going to be honest with ourselves. And then we get to, you know, the EU, talk about the old world of agriculture, the new world of data, um, and then of course there is us. Uh, and the, the uh, what is it, the Pogo, the old Pogo yes. uh, cartoon. Um, I have seen the enemy, and, and, and he is us. Uh, we're not so bad in the tariff side of the equation, but you don't want to look too closely at some of our agricultural programs. Um, you mentioned some of the, some of the, regulatory, uh, some of the regulatory barriers. Um, on tariffs in recent years, uh, let's say the line between unfair and fair uh, trade practices, the line between enforcement uh, and other rationale for raising tariffs has been fuzzed rather dramatically. Um, and uh, yet, I think it's probably safe to argue the U.S. market is still the most open market 
in the world are pretty darn close for a large, mm -hmm. you know, for a large economy. Uh, but there are companies and countries uh, involved in business in this in this economy. You would argue quite the contrary. Uh, and you know, when we talk about uh, reciprocity based on say, auto tariffs. Yes, the U.S. auto tariff is 2.5%. The EU tariff is 10%. The Chinese tariff is, is depending on which day of the week, 15%, 20%. Uh, if we look at the um, non-rubber footwear tariff um, and look at our, what is it, 56% tariff in one category, I'm not sure we would want to compare that number on a reciprocity basis with, with certain other countries. 34% on tobacco. Details, details. <laughs> um, so then I think the zero for zero concept when uh, it was uh, uh, discussed in the Wall Street Journal uh, op-ed uh, was introduced more as a bilateral concept. You know, let's negotiate some more bilateral agreements. Uh, and here we get into some more of the, of the doable and the impractical. Right? So if you're talking about zero for zero on tariffs, that's, that is in fact doable on a bilateral basis. Um, and we've done it. We've done it in multiple bilateral free trade agreements, or we've come pretty close to doing it. But, but most of our bilateral FTAs really do go to zero in everything. Uh, in some cases, it takes a while to get there, and, and, um, and in some cases, when we go from administration to administration, um, think U.S.-Korea free trade agreement, autos, uh, light trucks, it takes longer and longer and longer over time to phase in. But eventually you get to zero. And this is a, this is a good thing, except that you don't capture all of the non-tariff barriers. You don't necessarily, um, you aren't necessarily able, able to capture them. And, and one of the sticking points, for example, in the US-EU TTIP conversation, and even in the, in the um, conversations going on on TISA, on the services multilateral sectoral uh, deal, the EU did not want to include future services, right? So, so here, you know, are you going to have to go back and get at this uh, over and, and, and over again? But non-tariff barriers, you capture some of them in bilateral deals, but some of them as a practical matter, such as some of the regulatory issues that Dan was talking about, can't be administered on a bilateral, just a bilateral basis. They're administered on a whole of economy basis. Similar subsidies are administered on a whole of economy basis, and therefore, ultimately, we would have to be tackled on a whole of economy or MFN basis. So then you're talking about either uh, 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 non-MFN applications where you've got a WTO issue, or you're talking about a free rider issue, or you're just talking about the impracticality of a, you know, an FDA uh, or a, actually FDA is a wrong example because those are, those are, are not under the control of the executive branch, but, but say a, a USDA um, reg uh, that is very hard to administer just on a on a bilateral uh, basis. Uh, the um, but getting to the third point, setting the impracticalities aside, 
Um, there are elements of the zero for zero for zero, and Dan alluded to uh, a number of them, that I think are, are fundamentally important, and fundamentally important in terms of directionally correct. And here I would say, I would, I would go after the subsidies and go after the non-tariff barriers and keep the tariffs, which is to say transparency first and foremost. Uh, and this goes to the whole scheme of let us draw out of this the key principles. First and foremost, transparency. Secondly, associated with transparency, due process, accountability. Um, one of the benefits that we have from the current regime in the United States, uh, trade policy regime, is we are in fact seeing the costs associated with trade barriers. Um, those of us who teach trade policy have been preaching this for years. And you have to go back and you talk about Smoot-Hawley this and Smoot-Hawley that. Uh, generations ago, and sometimes it's uh, easier sell than others, but now we've got real life examples, and real life examples associated with downstream industries and job losses and industries, uh, you know, shifting production overseas. Well, tariffs um, and the transparency, and you go back to Uruguay around and the notion of re-tarification, that was not an accident. And to the extent that you can take non-tariff barriers and translate them into tariff barriers so that consumers and producers see the costs associated with um, uh, tariffs. That is better than the other two. Similarly, on subsidies, to the extent that one could start imposing, and with all of these monitoring and disclosure requirements, uh, again, back to transparency, I think there is, there is um, uh, benefit to be had. Uh, now maybe I'm sort of flowing into the group on the, on the you know, how do you modify the, the, the regime. Okay. Uh, but on non-tariff barriers, data-based, science-based. Um, again, disclosures. You may not get to zero, but if, the, if your ban on GMOs or your GMO labeling says GMO-free in spite of the fact that there is no scientific evidence to show that there are any negative health impacts from uh, GMOs or BPA or, you know, you, yes. pick, your, you pick your consumer uh, hysteria or your precautionary principle uh, hysteria, um, uh, that kind of disclosure at least enables consumers to make choices. Uh, and then, you know, they will decide on their own. I think I will, I think I'm going to stop there. Uh, there are implications in terms of all of these actions bolstering multilateral institutions ultimately, but again, that's another group. Thank you, Susan. And it's a great way to start. <clears throat> you can tell, I, I find, uh, having worked in Washington for a little while, that no one understands the political dynamics like a Senate-confirmed officer. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> so, You've beaten up just enough time. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> there's, there's something about that. <clears throat> and as I recall, our tech, chief tax consultant was here. He used to be Senate-confirmed. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So. Still, still is. Still is. Okay. So it, it, yep. it's, uh, it's amazing yep. how that affects. In any case, great summary and with the practical uh, side of this. Let me start. I've got a two or three. I've got a couple of toss-up questions for, for uh, Dan and Susan. 
and then we'll open it up to a broader discussion. Uh, first toss-up question has to do with what's the value of a big, audacious goal? Uh, they're actually quite prominent in the corporate world. There's a book written back in the 90s called Built to Last. And they, the Built to Last was about what, how, how do companies succeed over time. And one of the things that was identified with the successful, sustainable companies was the ability to set and deliver against big goals. Uh, an example was Boeing, Boeing Company's decision in the 1950s when there was basically zero uh, sales of jets to commercial aviation uh, service providers, they, they decided they were going to focus almost entirely on jet travel for commercial purposes. And that decision kept them so far ahead of McDonnell Douglas and the other competitors that they became the duopoly they are now with, uh, with the, the Airbus. So in any case, so those kinds of things actually are, have a very good track record in the corporate world. Well, the question is, how about in the policy world? Uh, let, me let me toss it to you with two examples, one a pretty good one and one not so good. They're both from 1994. In 1994, the APEC economies, the 21 Asia-Pacific economies, in their meeting in, uh, in Bogor set the Bogor goals. And the Bogor goals were big. It was free and open trade and investment in the Asia-Pacific. They were sufficiently ambiguous that everybody could sign them. They were far in the future. In 1994, it was 25 and 15 years into the future. So this free trade and investment, open, you know, free and open trade and investment for the developed economies was 2010, for developing economies was 2020. But it's a big goal, okay, and it's a big political commitment. Now, did they get all the way there? No, okay, but did they get do they make progress? Absolutely. In fact, we could, we could watch, having followed APEC for a long time, for all the things that never happened in the meetings, the share of trade in the APEC region crossing borders at zero tariffs declined every single year, or increased every single year during the Boger Goals. So, you know, it's one of those, you remember the functions, the, the quadratic functions where you have that, that curve that, that gets real close to the x-axis but never touches, never gets to zero. It's that function. You never quite get there, but, but it's real progress. So that's, a, that's at least a positive example of a big goal. Less positive is another 1994 example, the, the free trade area of the Americas, set at the Miami Conference uh, uh, of, of Leaders uh, in, in the summit of the, what was called the Summit of the Americas. Um, I talked to Arminio Blanco, former uh, Mexican trade negotiator, about this. I asked him, well, what happened with the FTA, really? And he said, well, it's simple. You set a 10-year goal for free trade. Every trade negotiator takes an eight-year paid vacation. <laughs> okay? And, and everybody woke up in 2002, and the world changed, had changed in, in a lot of respects. And so it was one of those things. So they don't always hold together, but they sometimes do. So just question both. What's the value of a big goal? Dan. I see the value of a big goal for business as you, as you started off with your first example. With government, there is, uh, for policy, there is also value in it, uh, and I'm not going to endorse a top-down sort of approach to yeah. the way things should be, but to leave as a marker a, a, a policy goal that we should strive toward is important, particularly considering how we have this built-in um, sort of uh, division of power in our system. We have federalism. Uh, we have uh, separation of powers, three branches of government. We have divided government. So there are changes uh, all the time, and there, the, the instinct to want to abandon 
the goals of your predecessor, our current, pre our current president, just put a minus sign in front of all of Obama's policies, right? Uh, uh, we should. And Obama did the same to agree. From Bush. <laughs> that, 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 that's true. He was just, he, he was more subtle about it. He didn't boast about it. Um, so I think it's important to have, uh, to, to overcome the fact that we have tendencies, built-in tendencies to deviate from script. Um, that said, uh, we shouldn't make the perfect enemy the good. I'm a skeptic, and I, I'm sure Susan is at this point too, uh, of the, the whole concept of the single undertaking. So we could have these goals of three, uh, going to three zeros, but should we wait until we've agreed on everything before anything goes into effect? I say no. I say the great killer of progress. The great the killer of undertaking. Yes. If, if, if we're going to wait to reduce, um, uh, you know, agricultural tariffs in the EU or something that fairly easy, low-hanging fruit until the Europeans agree to stock their shelves with GMO products. We're not going to have any agreement. Yes. And so we should have tranches in our trade agreements. And um, I made this proposal when the TTIP first came out, and uh, I presented it to American audiences and European audiences, and the Europeans were adamantly opposed to it. Mm -hmm. uh, but now I think they're, it's, it's beginning to flip a little bit. And mm -hmm. I think goals are good. Uh, let's not make the perfect enemy the good. Fair enough. Susan. So I think I, I'm going to build on that. I, I am a great believer in, in uh, big goals. Um, I think there, there's too much incrementalism in life, and I think if you set out incremental goals, you're going to get incremental or no, no results. I do think there has to be a very um, thoughtful uh, separation of means and ends, and Dan mm -hmm. started talking about that. So the, the end is a big goal. The means of getting there doesn't necessarily have to include a single undertaking. Mm -hmm. Doesn't necessarily have to include MFN. Or, I mean, let's start thinking about substantially all trade, the definition of substantially <laughs> all trade. Let's look at the last ITA expansion. Mm -hmm. You know, if Brazil wanted to shoot itself in the foot on the first ITA, uh, Brazil and Mexico, for that matter, yes. they opted out. It was okay for them to opt out. Mm -hmm. The second ITA expansion, India chose to shoot itself in the foot by opting out. I mean, we know that this is a self-inflicted wound. This is not right. a wound inflicted on the rest of us. It's an inconvenience on the rest of us. Um, it hurts the global economy, but at mm -hmm. the end of the day, it is India's economy that is the most hurt by opting out of the ITA. Now, as a system, there are definite repercussions because as the multilateral system moves forward, you have a number of larger players that will become less and less competitive relative to their trading partners, mm -hmm. which will lead them to try to hold back progress on a multilateral basis. And quite frankly, I think that is as much an explanation as any for what we see India and South Africa doing in Geneva today. Mm -hmm. um, and there are other explanations, but but Therefore, I think we have to think very innovatively, whether it's tranches, mm -hmm. um, and you know, there certain tranches work better than others, like the idea that we can do a US-EU deal that doesn't include agriculture is one of the funniest things I've ever heard. It's hilarious. It's somebody who has never met a member of the United States Congress. Right, precisely. Um, <laughs> um, 
you know, the first thing I learned, my first job was as a, as a baby agricultural negotiator at USTR, the predecessor for USTR. And, the, and, and it was under the, the leadership at that point of um, the, the unique uh, Robert Strauss, uh, who was uh, just an amazing politician, um, who taught me that every state has two senators and at least two cows. And it was a lesson that I have never, ever forgotten. Um, and that was it. Yeah, yeah. For never holding elective office, he was the best politician he was in the, town. He was absolutely <laughs> the best politician in town. And that is a fact of life. And if the EU can't figure that out, yeah. um, we're not going to get far. We're not going to get very far, exactly. Great. Well, that actually leads to my second question. And first of all, thank you for mentioning the ITA. Because if, the ITA is basically the three zeros worldwide. And in, autos in a sector. could be, and autos, autos could, could be could there, be could be just like three zeros. But 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 uh, right at the moment, uh, the in 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 electronic, basically electronics world, ninety percent of trade in electronics uh, is under the ITA agreement, which is zero tariffs, zero subsidies, zero non-tariff barriers. That's why your phone's so cheap. I'm not sure about the zero subsidies part. Yeah, we we it's not part of the agreement, and most of the. Producers abide by that, but China's in there. So yes, you're right. We didn't quite get all all the way. It's, but it, but it's a great example of how this can actually work. So thank you for bringing that up. In that light, and you mentioned in your opening remarks, the Trump administration plans to negotiate bilaterals with big partners. Well, that, it's an interesting approach. But what you have is this situation, which is the challenge is that Japan, Europe, the United Kingdom and the United States all have this funny profile as traders, which is the, the markets are remarkably open for the most part. Tariffs are low. The United States, by the way, average applied trade-weighted tariff is 1.7%. I mean, it's easy to find. Just look at the total tariff collections and look at the total imports. $2 trillion of imports, $35 billion in, in tariff collections. 1.7%. It's easy. And, it, and that's a pretty open market on a trade-weighted basis. However, uh, and, and, you know, sort of there, there are real, some real problems and real, really tr resistant to change problems with individual sectors, individual subsidies, and remaining high tariffs. So, you know, th this is a problem in, for, for us. If you look at the Jones Act, I, I believe, although Wood Wilson signed the Jones Act, I think it was carved in stone tablets sometime after, <laughs> shortly after that, because it seems to be unchangeable. It leads to an uncompetitive maritime uh, transport sector uh, and lots of other negatives. But, but it is, you know, we have those problems. Uh, there are lots of things we don't negotiate on. Sugar, I think, always manages to escape. Uh, ethanol, forget any imports of ethanol. So they're, they're, we all have them sensitivities, so, so, so to speak. So how does the three zeros work in, in the very kind of negotiations that President Trump wants to take on with Japan, rice, with Europe, everything anybody eats, uh, with us, cheese. <laughs> so let, let, let's say if you start, well, let, let's, let's start with autos. Yes. Okay. Let's start Good with a, an ITA type arrangement for autos, but a zero for zero for zero arrangement for autos. Think through that one. Well, actually, I think the auto industry would embrace that instantly. I mean, the, the, except you, possibly on light trucks. Yes, light trucks would would take a very long time. Yes, sir. No, I mean the the German. Yeah, 
Light, oh yeah, let's separate the... the well, this is, this is, that, that was my point. It may yeah. take a little while on light tracks. The, but the chicken tax is a, is a barrier for us. Uh, but, but if you started with autos, if, if you started with autos and you, you did tariffs, you did subsidies, and... Non-tariff barriers. Non-tariff barriers. Which means harmonized regulations, basically. Yeah. Uh, and given that the auto, the world auto business, we, we don't have American auto companies. There are about 85 million cars sold a year on planet Earth. There are about, let's say roughly speaking, 10 manufacturers who have, call it 70, 75% of the market share in producing and marketing those 85 million vehicles. And every one of those 10 companies sees the world as an economic entity. They're global companies. They tend to produce regionally, but they look at the world as, a, as, a, as one business opportunity. And so that's why, while the, everybody, everybody rejects the ideas of a national security tariff, I think it was the head of the German auto industry, uh, trade association, who came out and said, let's just go to zero. Let's, let's, right. let's make this work. Let's go for it. So You'd have to throw in IP protection. But yes, yeah, you, that's right. It would have to be one of the, the non-tariff barriers. That you have to deal with. So, right. Interesting. How about yeah. medical devices and pharmaceuticals? There you go. T together. Yes. Uh, well, since it'd be a little know, harder. Civilian aircraft was already subject to Uruguay Round Zero for Zero, as were you know construction equipment and lots of other fairly large categories. I think it can be done. What do you think, so, Dan? So, are we convinced that the administration wants to do Zero for Zero with all these trade uh, partners we, that we've seen? We have one, we have one tweet. One, one, oh, one tweet. <laughs> That's right. We're just exploring referenced, the ideas. Uh, referenced many times. Yeah, because that would be different, quite different than the USMCA, right? That, yes. that there's, there's a lot to negotiate. I think uh, if I had my druthers in terms of policies that should be on the table, which could win us all sorts of market access abroad, would be to get rid of the Jones Act. I mean, really, that is hugely costly to our economy. Um, you know, we've had the ITC and others run uh, numbers and estimate that the costs are something like $1.5 to $3 billion a year. They're only looking at the first costs. Right. They're not looking at the secondary costs. There are environmental costs, there are opportunity costs, time spent in traffic. All of this traffic is on the road instead of on, on the ocean highways. Uh, we get, have uh, uh, foregone domestic sales because of the cost of transportation makes it too expensive for Carolina hog farmers to purchase grain from Iowa. It's better to buy it from Brazil. Um, and we lose access to foreign markets because we have this as a carve-out in every one of our agreements, mm -hmm. including the WTO. Um, and it's not doing its, its intended purpose, which was to bolster national security by having a ready supply of merchant marines. Uh, the Europeans and others are very interested in, in this issue. And there are very few people who are pretty well organized still, but can be, I think, toppled. I know you, you mentioned this earlier, the, the Jones Act is, you know, with the, is, is written in scripture, <laughs> but uh, its time is coming. And so if we can get that on the, on the negotiating table, we could get a lot of, uh, a lot of thawing with our, our trade partners. Okay, so let me um, go back to my original role when we first got here um, and offer two observations. One is, um, there are a handful of things that when you get into the negotiating on behalf of the U.S. business, um, you learn under no uncertain terms can you touch this. That one generally shows up on that list. I agree with you, by the way, about how pernicious it is and how hurtful it is. A um, couple of thoughts. One, 
let me go back to my transparency and re-terrification uh, and disclosure concept, which is if there were a way of translating the Jones Act mm -hmm. into a um, formal calculated subsidy that is then handed out yes. in lieu of the protection, mm -hmm. um, which has real political challenges. Uh, no doubt. You know, see green box in agriculture. Right. Um, then you have a fighting chance. So let's start with how you characterize these kinds of subsidies. And that was sort of my point mm -hmm. about to the extent that you can hold them up to the light and define them in a way that is less invisible, less pernicious, um, uh, showing the extent that, that it is a burden, who it's a burden on, how much of a burden. Yes. And then can you take care of those whose livelihoods depend on it mm -hmm. um, and change the cost structure? Um, so that's one. Mm -hmm. Two, then you've got the negotiator in me that says, don't ever give it away. You got to get something for it. Right. So that's the other side of the equation, which is where trade negotiators part company with classical economists who would say, you should just unilaterally get rid of it because it hurts us. You know, I, I had a conversation with Marco, Senator Marco Rubio one time, and I asked him about the sugar program. And he says, okay, I'm okay for reforming the sugar program as long as we get something for it. And I said, how about cheap sugar? <laughs> <laughs> we changed the subject quickly. That's not what he meant. That's not what he meant. But uh, great point, Susan. And you know, the, actually, Dan, thank you for bringing up the carbon footprint uh, penalty of the Jones Act. Because just so for those of you who know, if you're serious about carbon footprints, m transportation on water is the lowest, has the smallest carbon footprint. Transportation on land is much higher. And so because the Jones Act governs U.S. port to U.S. port transfers and there's no merchant fleet, you have a lot of trucks on the highways that could be ships. Just saying. Uh, but you're absolutely right about the difficulty of those changes. So thanks. I'm going to hold off on my third question because I think we have some comments, questions, uh, interjections from the people here. So thank you for being patient. There is a microphone which you, you're welcome to use. Uh, it's a small enough room. You may be able to get away without it if you have as loud a voice as I do. You're welcome to use your outdoor voice and no microphone. Uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, we do ask you to identify yourself and your organization. So if you. Thank you. Uh, thanks, uh, Scott. Great panel. Um, Jean-François Watin with uh, AFEP, which is a French business roundtable, big companies there. So I have four remarks. Uh, uh, bear with me. Number one is uh, there is something in the Montreal-Quebec air about free trade because that triple zero that was mentioned by the president in the G7 Yes. That was uttered by Dick Ling, Secretary of Agriculture, in 1988 at the GATT Ministerial, and it was about agriculture, where he suggested that there should be no tariffs, no subsidies, no non-tariff barriers in agriculture. And we know where we are right now. Uh, so it's basically coming from his administration, a teeny, teeny fig leaf. That's all there is to it. Okay. Number two, uh, from a realistic point of view, and I second what 
Ambassador Schwab said, do you see Congress uh, getting rid of the farm bill? Do you see the beginning of a discipline on state subsidies to attract companies, with the case of Amazon being a very good, very good one? I don't see it. Number three, I think if we want to be pragmatic about it, we should look at multilateral like the ITA agreement and probably introduce some clawback on countries that free ride on these uh, agreements uh, to make it more palatable. Because I don't think there is really, it's frankly frustrating that countries like Mexico or Brazil uh, free ride or India free ride on the, on the ITA. So clawback, rebalancing on this. Yes. And number four, can zero, uh, triple zero, be done, it can. Look at the EU, it's a perfect example of triple zero between 28 countries, soon to be 27. Mm -hmm. Alas. Yeah, no, very good last point, actually. If you look at both the EU single market and the United States of America, thanks to the Commerce Clause, okay, you have extraordinarily large consumer-free markets uh, with no tariffs, no subsidies, no non-tariff barriers but among the state, states or within the European uh, Union, and it's been highly beneficial. It's actually the, the economic, the, the benefits to individuals from these large, open, dynamic open markets is, is in, inarguable. So that, those are both great examples of it. Now, it's, the, it's how you get it further is, is is where, where things get a little hard, but uh, thank you for making that point, yes. Other, other questions, comments? Yes, sir. A question, I guess, for Dan Eikenson. Um, Could you identify yourself, please? I'm Eric Hershorn. I'm a senior, non-resident senior advisor at CSIS. Thanks. Among other retirees' hats. Uh, and a former Undersecretary of Commerce. And a former Undersecretary of Commerce. Um, it's fine to be a proponent of the free market and no restrictions, no barrier, no tariff, no tariffs, no non-tariff barriers, uh, and, and no subsidies. What do you do with the people who were left behind by that? I mean, for all the hand-wringing about Donald Trump, it's a real message. Maybe not the best messenger. It's a real message. What do, what do what does a globalist say, and what does the global economy do with the people who are left behind? Are they to fend for themselves? If we're saving that much money for the consumers by having free markets, completely free markets, shouldn't more of that money be going to the people who are being left behind? I guess that's the question. So you're putting the onus, it seems, on trade and free markets, and I guess technology, our iPhones are part of the free market, products of the free market. Mm -hmm. um, but as an advocate for trade, I, 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 yes, the past couple of years, I've felt like the dialogue and the narrative has shifted in such a way that we have to say something about adjustment. Uh, we used to all just say, hey, there's trade adjustment assistance, and, and that, yes, of course, that doesn't work. But Trade accounts for a very, very small share of job displacement relative to technology. So we should be having this discussion, uh, but it sh we shouldn't be treating people who can somehow 
established that they've lost their jobs because of trade, we shouldn't be treating them any differently than somebody who loses his job uh, at a factory because of corporate malfeasance or because of changing consumer tastes or because of, because of technology. Because every one of these apps on your phone used to be somebody's job. Uh, so we need to think about that. We have a, a country that has a federalist system. We have 50 states. They're all laboratories of experiment for policies that could work. What is working? Well, it's hard, it's hard to say. You look at some states that do a better job of uh, creating output, creating jobs, attracting foreign investment, attracting domestic investment. A couple that come to mind tend to be in the South. Texas. Texas, uh, you know, t Tennessee, Alabama, South Carolina. Why? why? Why are they attracting more investment? Well, maybe it's because of the mix of business-friendly policies, the, uh, the absence of a, you know, an, an antagonistic uh, labor history there. I'm not saying that those policies will work in every state, uh, but I'm saying that we should be able to, uh, to experiment and, and be willing to adopt policies that other states uh, are, are, are implementing. Um, so we, we need, you know, people need to be able to, um, to, to migrate to where, to where jobs are. But, I mean, if the, if the, uh, if the fallback, if, if what you were hinting at, uh, if you don't have an answer for what exactly should be done, what are we supposed to do? To, we, should we stop trading? Should we have an innovation tax? I mean, this is, you know, we all need to figure out how to adapt. I look around the country, there are lots of uh, institutions, I think, that are, that are failing uh, mm. people. Um, and we need to... Everything needs to be opened up, be on the table. We have uh, just profound gridlock in Washington and partisanship and a lot of rancor that solutions aren't easily found there. The states need to step up and, and do more and experiment more. So I'd leave it at that. As a footnote, uh, probably because of my roots in Ohio, uh, I would say that, look, one of the things about our society today is life comes at you fast things that used to feel permanent are less so now. And one of the things, uh, actually there's a wonderful book by Ted Alden. Ted Alden was a long time, actually a trade journalist. He, he used to bug me for insider tips, uh, off the record comments at Inside US Trade. But he's a terrific guy, a terrific thinker. He published a book called Failure to Adjust. And it's really about this very issue, about how the United States moved from basically a point in 1970s an autarky. We, we had about 10% of GDP in trade, which was about what the Soviet Union had in, 1990, in 1970. Okay, so we were, we were a, basically a domestic economy with a small exposure to international trade, and now we've moved to a little over 30, almost a third of our GDP, much larger GDP of course, is international trade. And uh, he also, one of the, 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 the uh, sort of modes of his book is he cites some, Pete Peterson, who's, who was a rich guy who named the institution up the street, uh, who does a lot of uh, great economic work. But Pete Peterson was a White House fellow for Richard Nixon in 1971 and wrote about the coming crisis in America and the need to provide for adjustment. And, uh, and uh, visionary that he was in both business and public policy, uh, Peterson saw this coming and we've never really done anything about it. So I would, I would first say it's a problem that it's how we got Trump in some ways. It's, it's, the, it's why we are where we are. And it, it'll affect the three zeros debate. But I would note if you want to, if you have curiosity in this area, pick up Ted Alden's book. It's excellent. So. <clears throat>
With that, let me, let me ask my question I was going to ask before the audience comments. Thank you for participating. But this is one I, uh, that one of the things, look, President Trump is doing the job that he thinks he was elected to do. There's, I think, good support for the fact that he is a president who tries to fulfill his campaign promises very diligently. And, uh, and he sees his, his personal stamp on trade as very important. But the three zeros is a shift in direction. President Trump's narrative through the campaign and in office is that Americans are being treated unfairly and that we need to take action against our trading partners because of that unfairness. For me, the three zeros is a statement of confidence about America. And if the United States were to propose it and adopt it as a goal, it's almost the reverse idea. It's saying that, look, we have the greatest, most competitive, dynamic economy in the world. We succeed at everything because we have great rules and because everybody has a fair shot. We have these, what, this Chinese electric car just showed up. I don't know if it's better than Tesla. It may, for all I know, be the next Yugo, uh, but God bless them, they're here, and they're going to compete in the market, and we're going to find out. Okay, that's one wonderful thing about the United States. We protect everyone in terms of their investment stakes. People, are, uh, Businesses and people are treated fairly in this country, and it's why the economy is so dynamic. For me, that's the starting point to say now. We'd like you, country X or Y, to treat our firms the way we treat yours. And that, for me, is the moral high ground of the three zeros. So am I off base, number one? And number two, can, do you think the administration can do that kind of reversal? Susan. Well, I think your, your, your fundamental point is correct. I mean, at some point, there needs to be, certainly to get to the three zeros, you've got to pivot away from um, life is unfair and we get conned every time we negotiate a trade agreement. You can't be in office for more than three years without at some point moving beyond that narrative uh, because you're the one negotiating the trade agreements and, and, and I think it'll be very interesting to see how the current China negotiation plays out because that um, uh, I think you, well both what happens with USMCA and in terms of its onward journey on the Hill and um, uh, the U.S.-China negotiation. Yes. So I think those will be very important. And then I agree with everything that you said with taking the next step, which is this administration, and it really is this administration, has until July 2021 to get that done because Trade Promotion Authority expires July 2021. So wow. whether there Just, is... Can we pause there for a second? Because any of you who worked on Trade Promotion Authority in, in 2015, if you thought 2021 was a long way off, <laughs> Ambassador Schwab has just disabused you of that notion. <laughs> right. So, you know, whether there is a new administration in 2021 or not, the first six months of an administration is not going to be enough time, presumably, to start a new bilateral negotiation. You could conclude a bilateral negotiation, sure. um, but you'd still uh, you still run out of time in terms of the TPA timing notification and mm -hmm. so on. So, uh, if there's going to be a bilateral deal with anybody, whether it's Japan, whether it's the UK, whether it's the EU. Uh, and both of the latter two seem to be 
for their own domestic political purposes, sort of walking back yes. the timing, um, has to happen sooner rather than later if they want to engage with the U.S. And um, uh, otherwise, you know, the next story is what does the next TPA look like and when does that happen and how does that happen? And that is a, you know, Katie bar the door kind of conversation. Thank you. Yeah. I, I, I share Susan's skepticism about uh, the prospects. I think to some extent, Scott, you're putting lipstick on a pig. And this, this is, uh, remember the context in which we started. <laughs> I'm an old marketing guy. Come on. That's why I did this for a living for a while. <laughs> You remember the context in which this came up? This was the negotiation at the White House over the summer with the Europeans after a lot of nasty rhetoric was exchanged and, and there was this discussion about achieving some sort of an agreement. And to me, it was mischaracterized. And really what this was, was President Trump, yes, he's been uh, towing this you know, grievance-based narrative. The United States has been this uh, great benefactor to the world since the Second World War. We've provided the security blanket, open markets we've been taken advantage of, and we want to change. By the way, you all have the same problems with China that we have. We're the natural leaders to, to do something about it, and we are going to do something about it. And if the Chinese aren't going to buy our soy, Europe, you're going to buy it, and you're going to do more for us. And, and so to me, I, found, I thought it was very aggressive. It was more of an iron fist and a silk glove sort of thing. I, I, I don't... I, I'm skeptical of the sincerity of the administration about this. It's good to say it, because yeah. if you say, this is our aim, oh, by the way, we're going to impose tariffs on steel, on aluminum, autos, yeah. and all these other things, but we have this big goal down the road. Um, I, I, I think we're going to be in flux and not making much progress toward liberalization, maybe progress toward prosecution uh, of a trade war with China, uh, but in, in, until the next administration comes in, into play, I don't see trade liberalization. Uh, flourishing. Fair enough. I thank you for arriving on time. We've now come to the end of our hour, believe it or not, which, which is one of the most entertaining things I've done in a long time. So thank you for putting up with me as the moderator. Uh, and I can get you out being first in the lunch line, which is the added <laughs> benefit of, of your attention to starting on time. In any case, uh, thank you for your uh, participation. And please join me in thanking our discussants.